the New Testament says the most astonishing things about the patriarch Abraham. Scripture, we are told, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And Abraham rejoiced that he was to see Jesus' day. The people of Israel are to be saved specifically because they are the children of Abraham. And yet, God can raise up children to Abraham from the stones. The coming of Christ is the fulfillment of the oath which God swore to our father Abraham. The dead who escape torment in Hades take refuge in the bosom of Abraham. And in the kingdom of heaven, the saved will sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even now, Abraham is living, and indeed, Abraham is the father of us all. This high view of Abraham does not stop with the New Testament. In both the traditional calendar and the new calendar, the Roman Catholic Church commemorates Abraham as a saint on October 9th, coming up. And in the East, the icon of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is brought out for veneration on the second Sunday before Christmas. This evening, I want to think with you about the life of this great saint so that we can begin to understand the exalted position given him by the Gospels, St. Paul, and the Church's liturgies. Now, the key to understanding the story of Abraham is to see it not as a freestanding whole, but as a continuation of a story that has already been underway for a while before chapter 12 opens. Why does the story of Abraham happen right where it does? Or to put it another way, why is the call of Abraham the next logical step in the story of Genesis? Well, inevitably, we'll have to begin with a review of what has happened so far. In the beginning, God creates a good world and creates man in his own likeness to rule over it on his behalf. But the first man and woman succumb to the serpent's temptation. And this kicks off the crisis that will drive the rest of the story, not only up to the story of Abraham, but through it and beyond. It'll be worth our while to consider that moment closely. What exactly did Adam and Eve hope to accomplish by eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The serpent urged them to eat it because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God made man in his likeness. So it's strange that the serpent tempts them to grasp at likeness to God. But the serpent claims that man can have likeness to God on his own terms, not on the terms dictated to him by the creator. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The strangest thing about the serpent's claim is that it turns out to be true. Just four verses later, we are told that the eyes of both were opened. And before the end of the chapter, God himself is described as witnessing that the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. What is this knowledge of good and evil the man has seized? When I ask my students this question, someone always says that Adam and Eve were like very young children who don't know the difference between right and wrong, and that eating the fruit gave them the ability to distinguish between good actions and bad actions. But someone else in the room always points out the difficulty. Our, clearly, our story clearly indicates that Adam and Eve sinned a big one. <laughs> but they couldn't have sinned unless they were capable of distinguishing between right and wrong. So we have to admit that Adam and Eve at least had enough grasp of right and wrong to, to choose between them. My students' next guess is equally predictable. Someone will say that Adam and Eve only knew evil in the abstract, 
not by experience. But by disobeying God's command, they did evil, and so came to know it experientially. I see heads nodding. Appeal is made to the biblical idiom by which a man knows his wife through intimate experience of her. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is thus the tree of the experiential knowledge of good and evil. The problem here is that God says the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Does God know evil by the experience of doing it? Doesn't seem so. Moreover, since Adam and Eve experienced God's goodness prior to their sin, this theory seems to imply that the so-called tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in reality just the tree of the knowledge of evil. (laughs) So what can we say? I would suggest that our only option is to see Adam's new knowledge of good and evil as analogous to his knowledge of the animals. Over the course of chapter 1, God named the earth and the sky and the sea, and seven times over, he declared that his creation was good. But in chapter 2, God brought the animals one by one to Adam to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Adam's act of naming seems to be an exercise of that dominion that God has given him over the animals. So by seizing the fruit, I'm suggesting, Adam claimed authority to name good and evil, to determine which things shall be called good and which things shall be called evil. God said it would be evil to eat the fruit. Adam says it's good. Although he has no power to change the natures of things, Adam has arrogated to himself the authority to name them. And in this He does, in fact, ape God's actions. He has seized a divine prerogative. He has become like God. As a result of their misdeed, Adam and Eve are ejected from the Garden of Eden and condemned to die. Their children, inheriting the curse, introduce murder, and things go from bad to worse until the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let me read that again. That's Genesis 6, verse 11. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Things were bad. So, God hits reverse on his creation. (laughs) He undoes the creation by allowing the waters above and the waters below to come back together. Reversing Genesis 1, in the great flood that wipes out the evildoers, leaving only Noah's family alive. Now, right at this point, God swears to Noah that he will never again destroy the earth with a great flood. That is to say, he will not try to fix his broken creation by undoing it and killing all the bad guys. But... Pretty soon it becomes evident that the curse on the human race has survived the flood along with Noah's family. The imagination of the thoughts of man's heart is still evil. Noah curses his sons and his son's descendants. Then comes the Tower of Babel where mankind decides to take the situation into its own hands by disobeying God's command to fill the earth. God foils their plan by scattering them, but the burning question at this point is, If the problem of man's curse is ongoing, and if men can't fix the situation themselves, and now wicked and disobedient men are scattered over the face of the earth, then what is God going to do since he has just sworn off killing all the bad guys? His creation is still ruined, but he has tied his own hands by promising not to uncreate it. This is where God calls Abram. So, presumably, God's call of Abram is the first move in a plan to resolve the conflict caused by the sin of Adam. After their sin, Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden to the east. And when Cain sinned, he was driven further away to the east. 
But when Abram is called, he's called from Ur to Palestine, back west. The direction has changed, but what does the change in direction signify? Our task this evening is to find out. So, Abram is first mentioned toward the end of the genealogy of Shem in Genesis 11, but effectively his story begins with the opening verses of chapter 12, which I will read to you. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse, and by you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There are seven promises, some of which seem to overlap with the others. Over the course of the story, there are many scenes in which the Lord states one or more of these promises. Here in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, again at chapter 12, verse 7, Then chapter 13, verses 14 to 17, most of chapter 15 is a single scene in which the Lord reiterates promises. Next is chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Then chapter 18, verses 17 to 19. And finally, chapter 22, verses 16 to 18. For those of you counting, that makes seven scenes in which the Lord gives or repeats the seven promises. Why the emphasis on the number seven? For this, we're going to skip ahead real fast to the story of the covenant between Abraham and Abimelech in chapter 21. So, after discussing the terms of the covenant, in chapter 21, verse 28, Abraham sets seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. Abimelech asks him, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set apart? Abraham replies that by taking the seven lambs, Abimelech will become a witness for Abraham that he dug the well where they are standing. Verses 31 and 32 conclude, Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath, so they made a covenant at Beersheba. Translation doesn't bring out the verbal connection Abraham is making. In Hebrew, the verb to swear an oath has the same consonantal base as the number seven. So where our translation says that Abraham and Abimelech swore an oath, one could just as well say that they sevened. The place where they swore this oath was therefore called Bir Shiva, which can mean either well of the oath or well of the seven. In other words, the number seven plays such an important part in Abraham's story because this is fundamentally a story about the Lord swearing an oath to Abraham and so making a covenant with him. There are three scenes in Abraham's story where the Lord raises one of the seven promises to the status of a covenant. Chapter 15 which elevates the promise concerning land to the state of a covenant using the word covenant. Chapter 17, which elevates the promise concerning descendants to the state of a covenant, again using the word covenant. And chapter 22, which elevates the seventh promise concerning a blessing to the nations to the status of a covenant, this time using the word for oath. So in this, the last of the seven scenes where the Lord states the promises, The Lord declares to Abraham, by myself I have sevened. And these three covenant oath scenes give the primary division of the text for Abraham's story. Stories are about conflicts or challenges to be overcome. If you want to say what a story is about, the first thing you have to figure out is what is the central conflict? What we're going to find as we get into Abraham's story is that since this is a story about the promises, Abraham's major conflict or challenge has to do with trusting in God's promises. And the story is about how Abram changes into Abraham, the father of faith as we remember him. This 
general conflict subdivides according to the three covenant scenes. In the first part of the story, Abram's difficulty focuses on the fulfillment of God's promise concerning the land. In the second part, it rotates around Abraham's struggle with the promise concerning descendants. And in the last and shortest part, Abraham's conflict has to do with the promise concerning a blessing for the nations. Now, how this is so, it will become clear as we get into the details. So with that as, as our outline for the evening, I want to return back to that first line of the story. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abram's response is both impressive and, and puzzling. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. On the one hand, Abram sets out into the unknown without question, or at least without any questions that we're told about. On the other hand, having been told to leave behind both his kindred and his father's house, he brings his nephew Lot along. Was Abram just not ready to part with all kindred? Or did Lot maybe beg to come and Abram just didn't, didn't have the guts to tell him to stay home? In any case, without giving away too much of the story to come, I will say right now, Abram will never be, have occasion to be glad of his decision to bring Lot. That name will be bad news from now on. <laughs> Abram reaches the land of Canaan and passes through it from north to south, receiving along the way another assurance from the Lord that to your seed I will give this land. But already the call to go to the land is conflicted because there is a great famine in the land. So Abram continues on south until he reach, reaches Egypt. Now as he draws near to this powerful kingdom, he gives the following command to his wife, Sarai. I know that you are a woman beautiful to behold. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared on your account. Abram feels like he's between a rock and a hard place, with the famine behind him and the Egyptians in front of him. So he's devised this half-truth to save his life. Or at least, saving his life is half of his motivation. The other half is, that it may go well with me. All works out according to Abram's plan. The Egyptians are, in fact, struck by Sarai's beauty, and things do go well with Abraham, Abram on her account. Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's house as his wife, and for her sake, Abram receives sheep, oxen, he-asses, men-servants, maid-servants, she-asses, camels, tremendous wealth. Right away, one is struck by Abram's willingness to get rich off of giving his wife to another man. But... Um, I, it, given, that he, given that he doesn't have children... And given that God has promised he will have children, you wonder, should Abram have simply trusted that God would keep him alive until the children came, you know, um, through the sojourn in Egypt? Anyway, God does rescue Abram from the awkward situation he has created. Plagues descend on Pharaoh and all his house, and Abram is sent packing with his wife and all his, the wealth he has accumulated back to the promised land. It's interesting to note, by the way, that Abram didn't choose strategically to go back to the promised land because the famine was over. He just went when he was forced to go, right? So did he have to leave in the first place? You notice God never told him to go to Egypt. This was Abram's idea. Don't know. In any case, the wealth accumulated in Egypt soon becomes a source of strife. As Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen discover that their, path, their, their flocks are just so big they can't all graze on the same land. So magnanimously, Abram offers Lot a deal. Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. As things turn, turn out, Lot chooses the Jordan Valley. So Abram stays in the land that God has shown him. But it's an odd moment in the story when Abram has been commanded by God to go to a certain place, but then gives Lot the choice about whether he gets to stay there. 
In any case, the Lord guides things to a good end. And the text tells us that Lot's separation from Abram was the occasion for God to reiterate to Abram the promises concerning land and descendants. Oh, but Lot's exit from the story is only temporary. Five kings in the Jordan Valley, where he's just gone, rebel against their overlord, Chedorlaomer, and he and the three other, and three other kings swoop in to restore order. The four kings rout the five kings and depart with plunder, including Lot and all his possessions. When word reaches Abram, he and his allies pursue the four kings far into the north, execute a, su- a stunning surprise attack, put all four kings to flight, and return with all the plunder, including Lot and his possessions. On his return, the five kings go out to meet him, and a mysterious sixth who is not part of the battle, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. We are told that Melchizedek is priest of God Most High, and Abram gives him a tenth of all the plunder. This gift is all the more striking because when the king of Sodom tells Abram to just keep the plunder, Abram refuses. It turns out that he has sworn an oath to God Most High, the very name of Melchizedek's God, that he would accept not so much as a thread or a sandal strap from the king of Sodom. The high respect paid to Melchizedek stands out in clear relief next to Abram's clearly low opinion of Lot's local ruler. Now, the story to this point feels like one thing after another with no common thread. But the following scene reveals what the focus has been on all the time. Okay, stay with me. When the Lord appears to Abram, Abram complains that God has not yet given him any children. So the Lord brings him outside and says, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your seed be. There follows Abram's finest moment yet. And he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. But if Abram is at peace concerning descendants, he still struggles with the promise concerning the land. Immediately after, immediately after Abram's righteous belief concerning descendants, the Lord promises this land to possess, and Abram responds not with faith, but with a question. O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? For Abram, this is the conflict. The Lord responds by orchestrating a a numinous covenant ceremony at nightfall. And in dread and great darkness, Abram hears the following words. Know of a surety that your seed will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be slaves there, and they will be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation which they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. To your seed I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Everything Abram has experienced so far in the story prepares him to understand this prophecy. What will it look like for his descendants to sojourn in a land that is not theirs? What does it mean that God will bring judgment on that nation and and bring Abram's descendants out with great possessions? Well, Abram can recall from his own life that he sojourned in Egypt and his wife was a captive. The Lord brought plagues on Egypt and Abram was driven out in haste from the land loaded with gifts from the Egyptians. What will it look like when his descendants return to the promised land and take it from the ten peoples listed in God's covenant oath? Abram can recall his battle to defeat the four kings who defeated the five kings. God doesn't mention that his descendants will fail to subdue the land completely until the eventual rise of a powerful king who will unite all the people under himself. But Abram has already met and honored a tenth king, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, a town later to be known as Jerusalem. Abram's story to this point is a story about the promise of the land, and it culminates in this covenant regarding the land. The next sentence announces a new theme. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. The focus has moved to the question of descendants. 
up to this point in the story, Abram has been the only developed character. Right? Pharaoh spoke one line. Melchizedek spoke one line. The king of Sodom, Sodom spoke one line. But only Abram's voice has been sustained and developed. Sarai was a silent pawn in Abram's scheme in Egypt. Lot has been mostly passive and entirely silent. Now that Abram has obtained peace concerning his descendants and received reassurance concerning the land, other characters are going to step forward with their conflicts, the most important of those other characters being Sarai. Her struggle with fertility develops and complicates Abram's conflict concerning descendants. He has faith that God will keep the promise. But 10 years have gone by. Sarai shows no signs of coming through with the promised offspring. And God, you know, never specified clearly that Sarai would be the conduit through which they would come. So Sarai suggests a plan to overcome the difficulty. She presents to Abram her Egyptian maid, Hagar, one of those maids he acquired in Egypt by loaning her to Pharaoh for a while. Um, and, and she proposes that Hagar serve as her surrogate. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. The tables are turned. Abram is now passive in Sarai's scheme as he hearkens to the voice of Sarai. That's a phrase we haven't heard since Genesis 3.17 where God said to Adam, because you have hearkened to the voice of your wife. Exact same phrasing in Hebrew. So Sarai simultaneously introduces us to Hagar and creates Hagar's conflict, which has to do with her status in the tribe. Is Hagar disposable property? A handmaiden picked up as booty from Egypt? Or is she the mother of the future chieftain? Right? Is she at the bottom of the social order or at the top? Legally, her offspring belongs to someone else. Biologically, she is the mother of Abraham's son. So where does that leave her? When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Sarai here makes a brief attempt to shift the agency in this story back to, to Abram. May the wrong done to me be on you. But Abram doggedly maintains his passive role. Right? Behold, your maid is in your power. Do with her as you please. Well, Sarai does to Hagar as she pleases, which would result in Hagar's early exit from the story. But for an angel who appears to stop her with divine promises, he says that her son Ishmael shall be a wild ass of a man, his hand against every man and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Apparently reassured by this brilliant future for her son, <laughs> Hagar returns to camp. Thirteen years go by, and Ishmael remains the heir apparent. It seems that the conflict concerning descendants has been resolved. But then comes the plot twist. God appears to Abram to raise the promise concerning descendants to the status of a covenant, as though Abram needs reassuring on this point. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. As though the question of descendants were still up in the air. You know, you, what, what is Abram thinking right now? Like, we, it's okay, we, we took care of it, right? But... But here's God make, saying, you obviously need this. Let me, let, me, let me do this for you. God goes further, changing Abram's name to Abraham, simultaneously symbolizing Abraham's claim on the promise and God's claim on the one that he has power to name, swearing to be God to you and to your seed after you. The surprises continue to pile up. Because this covenant is different from the last one. As for you, God says. And it turns out that this time, there's a stipulation that Abraham has to follow. He is to circumcise his children, and all his children are to circumcise their children, and those are supposed to circumcise their children, and so on forever. Anyone who is not circumcised will be excluded from the covenant. Now, Abram, journeying to the promised land in order to receive the covenant concerning land, but that covenant didn't contain a further mandate. 
The covenant concerning descendants comes with a job for Abraham, who now must instruct his children and instruct them to instruct their children after them to keep the way of the covenant. Then comes the greatest surprise of all. As for Sarai, your wife, God says, ah, there is a place for Sarai in the covenant. Abram and Sarai were wrong to suppose that her role was optional. They were wrong to suppose that God's promise needed their guiding help and that the descendants would come on their terms rather than on God's terms. Now the Lord changes Sarai's name to Sarah and declares that she herself will bear Abraham's son. Abraham falls on his face, outwardly to show respect, but privately to hide his laughter at the very idea, right? Like silently to himself, Abraham mocks the plan, right? Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Outwardly, he maintains his show of respect. Oh, that Ishmael might live in thy sight, right? Now, when God assured Abram of his, about his descendants in chapter 15, he believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. But it's hard to let go of a solution that has seemed good for 13 years. It's hard to renew that righteous belief in the face of physical sterility. It's hard to trust God on God's terms when his terms seem impossible. So God has allowed the situation to develop to the point that belief is a greater challenge. And Abraham's initial response is not reckoned to him as righteousness. God's reply to Abraham is firm. Sarah will have the child. The child's name will be Isaac. And then he distinguishes sharply between being blessed and bearing the covenant. Ishmael will be blessed, but Isaac will bear the covenant, right? To be a child of Abram's flesh is, another th- is one thing. To bear the covenant of Abraham is a different thing altogether. Docile now, Abraham circumcises his entire household, and for the remainder of the story, we will hear not another word of doubt from Abraham. Without any transition or break, we, we move from this conversation between the Lord and, and Abraham into the story of the, the, the visit of the mysterious three men. Abraham sees them and, and somehow he knows to offer them urgent and hasty hospitality. And the three visitors turn out to be the Lord himself. Right? As they visit, the Lord says, I will surely return to you in the spring and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. It turns out Sarah is, is listening at the door, right? And she laughs to herself at the very idea that she could have a child. Yeah, she does it too. In what, in what must be a sort of a jump moment for the eavesdropper, the Lord immediately demonstrates his awareness both that she was listening and that she laughed, right? Why did Sarah laugh? <laughs> Awkwardly exposed, suddenly afraid. Sarah denies the accusation, but she can't shake the, the all-knowing confidence of the mysterious visitor. Now, given that her name is changed, Abraham must have told her the content of the Lord's covenant, Right? concerning her children, but she didn't take him seriously. Maybe she takes him seriously now. But in any case, Sarah is left behind as the three mysterious visitors set out towards Sodom with Abraham accompanying them for a while. And once he's alone with Abraham, the Lord reveals the real reason for his visit, which was not to chat about Sarah. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So the Lord asks himself, like sort of musing out loud, whether he should keep his plan secret from Abraham. The reason this is even a question, it seems, is that Abraham is going to have descendants by whom all the nations will be blessed. So why should Abraham's descendants imply that God should reveal his plans to Abraham? Well, the Lord continues by answering his own question. Should he hide his plans from Abraham? No, for I have chosen him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. The reason the Lord should reveal his plans to Abraham 
is that Abraham is tasked with charging his children after him to keep the way of the Lord. Do you remember where Abraham was given this task? It was in the, the scene of the covenant regarding circumcision, right, where his name was changed. And this new task that accompanied the, the covenant of circumcision turns out to have given Abraham a right to know something about the Lord's plans for the future. Why is that? Well, in the broader sweep of things, the Lord's plans for the future, the, the, the broader, by the, I mean the grand narrative that goes beyond Genesis, right, to, to the end of Scripture. God's plan to bless the nations and counteract the curse that Adam drew down relies on Abraham's descendants. And Abraham is responsible now, to some degree, for making sure those descendants play their part. So if Abraham is responsible for the Lord's future plan, then he has some right to know about that plan. In the, in the narrower view of this particular episode in Abraham's life, it turns out that Abraham has some claim to know about God's plans because they concern Lot. Yes, Lot, the kinsman Abraham brought with him when he had been told to leave all family behind. Lot, the only character aside from Ishmael who has any claim to be Abraham's heir. God's plan includes the possibility of killing Lot. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Abraham responds the way God knew he would, right? He intercedes on behalf of the wicked cities. First, he argues that God should not destroy the cities if there are 50 righteous men in them on the principle that you shouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. Then he works the number down. What about 45? What about 30? What about 20? Oh, let, the, let not the Lord be angry, Abraham says, and I will speak again this once. Suppose 10 are found there. Now, the Lord is not angry, right? The reason he revealed his plans to Abraham was so that Abraham would intercede on behalf of the cities, right? So that Abraham would step into the role of intercessor. For the sake of tin, I will not destroy it. This conversation ended, the Lord went his way, and Abraham returned to his place. Abraham, no doubt, spent a fitful night by the oaks of Mamre, wondering what would happen to his nephew. Right? What drama was unfolding down there in Sodom and Gomorrah? He had begged the Lord down to sparing the whole for just ten righteous men, but whew, were there even ten in those two cities combined? Right? So we read in our text, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. The morning's red and yellow and orange rays filter through the rising ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah. In the narrow view of this particular episode in Abraham's life, the point seems to be that Lot has exited the story. As for the broader, broader sweep of things, Abraham has seen for himself the consequences of sin. And he understands how important it is that his descendants keep the Lord's covenant and how much the nations of the world need the intercessor that Abraham, and by implication his descendants, has become. But we've been seeing all of this from Abraham's limited point of view. After our text describes that dismal sunrise, the next sentence says, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. Despite appearances, Abraham's intercession was not without effect. Right? While Abraham sleeps in his tents, we, the readers, accompany the two angels down into Sodom and Gomorrah to watch the drama that Abraham can only wonder about. If there are not ten righteous men in Sodom and Gomorrah put together, there is at least one man whose character is not wholly depraved. Lot offers the two visitors hospitality, 
And when they propose to sleep on the street, he urges them strongly, presumably knowing the danger of sleeping outside in Sodom. When the danger pursues them even to Lot's door, he takes the generous but dubious step of offering his own daughters to the crowd. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please, only do nothing to these men. This only angers the crowd, at which point the angels reveal themselves, and they bring the crowd's physical sight down to the level of its moral sight and urge Lot to get himself and his family out of town. Here we begin to see the limitations of Lot's character. Unable to persuade his sons-in-laws to be to flee the city with him, he lingers even when the angels are urging him out. Eventually, they, they grab him and his wife and his daughters and physically drag them out of town and urge them, flee for your life. But Lot still delays, saying, I, I, he can't flee so far. He begs them to spare just the little city of Zoar, you know, that, that little, just this, just this small part of the wicked civilization in which he has become so comfortable. And in exasperation, they grant him even this, right? The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, we are told. So even as Abraham stood in sorrow, watching the sun rise through billowing smoke, Lot was staggering into Zoar to find refuge. His wife didn't make it. She carried Lot's dillying and dallying one step further, looked back, and perished. Ironically, after all that, Lot is afraid to live in Zoar, the city he saved with his pleas, right? We aren't told why he's afraid. Does he think that maybe the inhabitants of Zoar will turn out to be as violent as the inhabitants of Sodom? Is he worried that the Lord will renege on the deal, destroy Zoar too? We don't know. In any case, he ends up sheltering in a cave with the two daughters he had offered to the crowd that fateful night. And it, it turns out that his daughters are more or less what one would expect from women who grew up in Sodom. So um, Lot becomes a passive player in their nighttime scheme to get children. And uh, from this ill-starred progeny descend the Ammonites and the Moabites, enemies of Abraham's descendants to such an extent that Moses forbade any Ammonite or any Moabite from entering the congregation to the 10th generation. Well. With Lot out of the way, both for Abraham and for the reader, the story moves on. And yet, it seems like we move back in time, right? Abraham journeys toward the Negev, that is the, the, the southern part of Canaan. He comes to a foreign people. He tells them Sarah is his wife. The local ruler takes Sarah into his house. Haven't we seen all this before? It, it so resembles the story in chapter 13 with Pharaoh that a lot of scholars actually just suppose this is the same story that circulated in two versions and kind of accidentally got included into the text twice, right? But as we read on, we realize this is, this is, this is not a clumsy mistake. We're, we, are, we, the readers, are supposed to notice the parallels so that we'll ask ourselves about the differences Right away, the new context makes us realize what Abraham had done back in Egypt. All along, the promised descendants were going to come through Sarah. So by allowing her to be taken into Pharaoh's house, he had endangered the promise. He does it here again, still seeming to think that he needs to practice this deception in order to save his life. But this time, things turn out very differently. In Egypt, God smote Pharaoh in his house with plagues with, with no warning. But here he appears to command the local ruler of Abimelech to return Sarah to Abraham. For he is a prophet and he will pray for you. Right? The difference between last time and this time is that Abraham has changed. Now he is a prophet with an intercessory role just like we saw in the, in the last episode concerning Sodom. So God had closed up the wombs of all the women in Abimelech's household, so Abraham prayed for him, and all the wombs in Abimelech's house were opened. All the wombs in Abimelech's house. And God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children, 
for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son. If we keep in mind that the chapter divisions in our text are not original, they're added later, the transition here is entirely smooth from the opening of the wombs of Abimelech's wives to the opening of Sarah's womb. So in chapter 13, Abram returned from Egypt to the promised land. Here in chapter 21, Abraham emerges from Abimelech's house into the conception of his son. This part of Abraham's story concerning the promise of descendants opened with Sarai taking the lead, and it closes with Sarah taking the lead. After her old idea and God's new gift have coexisted for a few years, she sees Ishmael playing with Isaac, and she says to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Abraham is very displeased by this demand because he's still attached to his son Ishmael. But it turns out that while Sarai led him astray by suggesting that he sees the blessing on his own terms, Sarah is helping him purify his notion of seed. God himself intervenes to support her. Be not displeased because of the lad and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your seed be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. Abraham's understandable love for his son and for the woman by whom he got his son is misplaced. This time he should hearken to the voice of his wife because there is a vast difference between being the bearer of the covenant and being the physical descendant of Abraham. Through Ishmael too will come many descendants and presumably for those descendants there will be a land, right? But not even the divine promise of land and descendants makes Ishmael the bearer of the covenant. Abraham's struggle to this point in the story, the struggle to have sufficient and sufficiently pure faith in the promises of land and descendants is not enough. There's going to have to be a third part of the story. Well, as this second part comes to its close, we see Abraham at peace with the neighboring people even swearing a covenant of peace with Abimelech. He sojourns there for many days, no longer wandering the land or fighting local rulers. With his faith in the promises mature, he is at peace both externally and internally. Right? Remember, in the first part of the story, Abraham got himself into trouble by his own actions, right? bringing Lot, going to Egypt, lying about his wife. But in the second part, Ab Abraham allowed himself to be led into difficulty by his wife, but here at last, he has ceased to be the source of his own problems. So it is that the third part of the story is about God unilaterally plunging Abraham into the most harrowing situation he will ever face. After these things, God tested Abraham. Now, this is not a test to find out whether Abraham is faithful, right? This is the last push to perfect his faith, right? God is working on him. Take your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham makes no response. He doesn't object, argue, laugh, cry. Hebrew narrative typically does not state a main character's interior dispositions. It, the Hebrew narrative typically will leave you, the reader, to figure out the character's interior dispositions from his exterior speech and actions. But this short episode seems to go out of its way to avoid giving us anything like a clue to what Abraham is like inside. Right, we've seen Abraham in conversation with God before, and he has objected, argued, or laughed. Right? So his silence does say something. Abraham has changed over the course of his life. But we are given no further clues as to whether Abraham felt numb or afraid 
or disoriented, or whether his mind turned to after the deed and what he's going to tell Sarah, or whether he just began to ponder the very nature of this God he has followed for most of his life. We just see his obedience. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. But the test itself contains a couple of clues about why this would be hard for Abraham. Right? The, the Lord told him, here's the wording, take your son, your only one, whom you love. Most generally, this is hard because Isaac is his son. Right? For, for a father to kill his son with his own hands seems inherently repugnant, right? morally wicked. It goes against the natural love of a father for his child. More particularly, Isaac is Abraham's only son. Or wait, is he? What about Ishmael? No, the point has been made abundantly clear. The covenant will only continue through Isaac. And in fact, the most difficult thing Abraham has done to this point was to give up his son Ishmael. It turns out that was just a warm-up. Right? Now he is supposed to take the only son of the promise, the son on whom rides Abraham's entire hope for the future, and not really send him away, but kill him. Abraham has struggled over the course of his life to believe in the promises. Now he is asked to throw them away. If these are the interior obstacles to Abraham's obedience, ask yourself, what does he have to do to himself to carry out the deed? Does he have to give his heart a murderous bent? Quickly learn how to hate his son, right, in order to carry out the killing? Does he, does he need to turn to nihilism? Detach his heart once and, all, and for all, for, for all hope? Right? And just throw away the covenant? Is God's test intended to make Abraham a monster? To obey without destroying himself, it seems that Abraham has only one path. On the one hand, he can't reject the deed as evil. That would be disobedience. On the other hand, he must not force his heart to embrace the deed as good. That would deform him. Instead, he must simply leave it to God to judge the deed. He has to relinquish any effort of his own to declare the deed good or bad. God alone declares what is good and what is bad. As regards the covenant, on the one hand, Abraham can't cling to the covenant, covenant stubbornly and refuse to obey. Right? On the other hand, he can't despair of the promises and conclude that God is a liar. So instead, he simply has to leave it in God's hands how the promises will be fulfilled, relinquishing any effort at all to have the promises fulfilled on his own terms and according to his own lights. In other words, Abraham has to walk backward through the sin of Adam where Adam arrogated to himself the power of naming good and evil and seized God's blessings on his own terms, Abraham must undo these dispositions in his own heart. So Abraham rises early, saddles up, gathers Isaac and his servants, cuts wood, and departs. Now, hasn't he already done the deed in his heart? Why, why, why prolong this torment Okay, well, no doubt Abraham has some intention already, but at this early stage of an action, an intention is like freshly poured concrete, right? It's in the right shape, but it hasn't hardened yet. It needs to, needs to weather through self-doubt and anxiety, right? Over the three-day journey to Moriah, Abraham has time to turn the thing over from every angle, ask himself every possible question. The tensest moment comes when Isaac asks him about what they're going to do. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Whew. It's one thing to intend the deeds. It's another thing to talk about it out loud, right? Speech tries an intention. Well, Abraham's reply is enigmatic. 
God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Do we have here a glimpse into Abraham's secret hope that somehow the whole thing will be averted at the end by the provision of a miraculous lamb? Or does Abraham mean to recall how God miraculously brought forth Isaac, seemingly for this destiny? Either way, the tender addition, my son, suggests that his heart is not steeled against Isaac, right? You can almost hear him add, whom I love. Even when an intention has hardened in its shape, it's still directed at an unreality until the moment of the deed, right? To sacrifice Isaac remains just a thought, maybe a vividly imagined thought, until the moment of action is at hand. Now all questions are over. All hope of intervention has been abandoned. And the deed itself, in all its horrible particularity, receives the will's final command. This moment, as Abraham raises the knife, is when he finally and fully gives over all authority and hope to God, walking backwards through Adam's sin. And this is the moment God points to when he says, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Yeah. What, what oath could God only swear in response to this kind of a deed? I will indeed bless you, and I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies, and by your seed shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves, because you have obeyed my voice. Much of this we've heard before. God has already elevated the promise concerning descendants to the status of a covenant. God has already promised that those descendants will possess the land of their enemies. Now, notice, by the way, those two promises just taken by themselves, they're good for Abraham's descendants and no one else. Right? These promises don't make Isaac any different from Ishmael. It's only now, when Abraham has undone within himself the sin of Adam that God takes the covenant oath that through these descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham's life is the first step toward overcoming the curse. Now the description of this hope is very general, right? The nations will be blessed or will bless themselves, right? But we've seen before that God teaches Abraham not only through words but also through the events of Abraham's life, right? His experiences in Egypt and Canaan prepared him to understand the covenant concerning the land, right? His experiences with Lot and Ishmael prepared him to understand the promise concerning descendants and what that entails. The case is similar here. If Abraham wants to understand what blessing the nations will receive, he can do no better than to consult his own feeling of being blessed by receiving Isaac back from the dead. If he wonders, what is his seed going to do to bring about this blessing? He couldn't have a better guide than his own heart, the heart of a father who was willing to sacrifice his only son, his beloved. Right? By rejecting Adam's attempt to seize likeness to God, Abraham has become like God. As a result of this covenant concerning the blessing, those other two covenants concerning land and descendants take on meaning as well. Right? So the promise of land responds to mankind's expulsion from Eden. Man was driven from a land, now he is called back to a land. Right? And as a consequence, the promise of descendants has to do with a nation that is going to be given back the blessings that, Ab that Adam lost. And their task is going to be to somehow mediate these blessings to the rest of mankind. So the, the nation to descend from Abraham is going to be mankind in miniature, a microcosm of the whole, so that the restoration carried out in that nation can abound for the whole world. Now, in this epic plan of salvation, here's, here's the key point for this evening. Notice that Abraham's agency in this plan is not simply physical, 
It's a moral agency. Right? The whole thrust of his story, as we've gone through it tonight, is that God took a man who was good but not great and led him step by step to heroic virtue so that he could be the father of this future nation, not just physically but spiritually. So by God's gratuitous aid throughout his life, Abraham's meritorious choice secures the covenant that creates this nation. And the same choice makes him the model for that nation to follow. Physically, he's the father of Ishmael's lineage, right? But God wanted him to father the promised seed by faith. So, this is why those of Abraham's line are to be saved, specifically because they are Abraham's children. This is also why children of Abraham can be raised up from the stones, more than just his biological descendants. This is why God took care to prepare Abraham to understand the promises through his life experience, right? So he could act morally in relation to them so that today we can recite, I'm sure, many more propositions about Christ than could Abraham, right? But I doubt that many Christians grasp Christ better than Abraham did at the level of co-naturality, right? The gospel truly was preached to him beforehand. This, in turn, is why Abraham took hope with him to the realm of the dead, and all the faithful to die in future ages would be received into the space of hope created by his faith. Finally, this is why the church celebrates Abraham as a saint, a model, and an intercessor for us all. Holy Abraham, pray for us. Thank you all.